Vicky Gavin is head of business continuity for The Economist. We're going to begin this episode with a story she told me that neatly encapsulates the experience of crisis management that we're going to explore throughout season two. Vicky's team lost access to their office facilities following a completely unpredictable and catastrophic loss of power. They pulled together, improvised and piece by piece sourced the content and created workarounds to publish their daily edition without interruption. Yeah, so so one of the, the big events that we had was um, a few years ago in Washington. Um, it happened to be the uh, same year as the Japanese tsunami and nuclear meltdown. For us, it was pretty catastrophic. Um, we publish a daily newspaper in Washington and the area that our building was in, the power grid failed. Um, to give you a little bit of context, it was an old grotty neighborhood that had recently been done up and they'd put up a bunch of brand new office buildings, bright and shiny. Unfortunately, they had not upgraded the infrastructure. And so all of the underground wiring, etc., was quite old. And in June, during a heat wave, the combined impact of air conditioning and computers actually melted the underground cables. Um, didn't just short them out, melted them. Liquid metal and plastic. It was fairly catastrophic. It was late afternoon. And as I said, we publish a daily newspaper. We had done quite a bit of crisis exercising with the Washington team. And so they, they did everything they were supposed to do. When crises happen, we come together as a crisis team and figure out what we're going to do. Okay, we come together. What's the situation? Situation is you know, no electricity, no computers, no office, and we have to publish a paper. What are we gonna do? Oh, well, you know, there's a hotel a couple of blocks down that's outside this area. Why don't we get a room there? Great idea. Okay, everybody, you get on the phone, get the space, everyone else, get to the hotel now. And so the, the team decamped to the hotel. They got to the hotel, get into the, the facility that they've arranged there, and it took about a half an hour, 45 minutes tops. Um, and they came together and said, okay, now, how do we get the paper out? We have no systems. Everybody said, oh, well, we've got our laptops because the building, you know, it wasn't an urgent evacuation, so everybody brought their laptops with them. Great, okay, um, what about the masthead? Oh, well, I have a copy from, a draft copy from earlier today um, that has the masthead and everything else on it and, and a good portion of the stories that we were gonna run already. Fantastic, okay, let's get that shared around. Oh, the internet's going really, really slow here. Ah, okay, so the hotel has never actually planned to run a whole business out of their conference room. Um, so working with the hotel and internet provider in the area got the line boosted way up. Um, so that solved the internet access, that's great. Okay, now we can share the files around. <laughs> using the draft masthead that was on somebody's computer. You know, went through and re-edited the stories and cleaned everything up and got it to the printers. And we published our daily two hours late. Um, not bad at all. And we had nothing written down on paper because we don't. We don't plan for all of the electricity cables to melt. We, we do plan for how do we deal with a crisis? What's the situation? What are the impacts? What actions do we need to take? What decisions do we need to make? 
What things do we need to worry about? What else could go wrong? That power outage lasted for three days. Hard to imagine in our world an electrical outage in a city the size of Washington that goes on for three days. The power company actually had to run new lines on the surface to get electricity back to the buildings because it was actually months to repair the underground cables. Season two is about crisis management and hearing the stories and real life experiences of people who deal with them. Just like her attitude towards continuity, Vicky has a very inclusive and human-centric approach to crisis management, and we're going to hear more of her recovery stories throughout the episode, along with the processes she puts in place to deal with everything from the mundane to the disastrous. But first, let's start by defining an incident versus a crisis, and try to understand the escalation process that separates the two. What has to happen for an incident to become a crisis? There's actually an evolution in terms of bad stuff. So I talk about events, and that's the universe of bad things happening. And then out of all events comes a category called incidents. And incidents are events that have an impact on the business. And then of those incidents, a very, very small proportion become crises. And a crisis is something that needs additional senior level oversight to resolve. So you talked about the mining industry. The mining industry, I would suggest that they don't have crisis every day. They have incidents every day, as does every business. So my business, we have servers fall over every day. Currently, we've got construction going on on other floors, so we're having fire alarms every day. There are a variety of things that happen every day, and we have business as usual processes in place to deal with them, so they don't become a crisis. Um, I spoke earlier about the the website defacement. Vicky's referring to a malware incident she described that required careful PR management. We'll hear the whole story at the end of the episode. It only was escalated to an incident and a crisis as it exceeded the capacity of the people who were at the incident level. So it became an incident when after the restore, nothing happened. It went back to the way it was and then was defaced again. It became a crisis because once the the data team realized that we'd been breached, the possibility that data might have been stolen or, or something else much, much bigger could have happened meant that they wanted senior leadership there making decisions. Because at the end of the day, it's not my business. It's, it's not their business. It's, it's the senior leadership team who have to make that. So it's about knowing at what point you no longer need that senior level oversight. And sometimes it's to make the tough decisions, and sometimes it's just to keep everybody going. So (laughs) you don't have a BAU crisis. That's business as usual. If it's BAU, it's an incident. Crisis is that extra level above. So that's how you escalate up to a crisis. But how do you come back down? How do you know when you're really out of the woods and you can go back to normal, back to business as usual? Once the initial triage phase is over and the situation seems to have stabilised, this might mean new symptoms stop appearing or existing symptoms stop behaving unpredictably. Vicky recommends cautiously elongating the time between crisis management meetings rather than simply handing over to another less senior team. When you get to the point where you say, okay, we've got everything under control, and at the moment, it doesn't appear that there's anything else that we need to be worrying about. In fact, we're starting to see really solid signs of recovery here. 
Are we ready to, to stop crisis management? If we are, we can do it right away. If we're going, gee, you know, maybe it's a little early, what we'll do is spread out the meeting. So while we might have been meeting every four hours, we might go to once a day. This slowing down isn't always a quick process. The beginning of a crisis is often sudden, whether that's the event itself or simply the realisation that something is wrong. Conversely, the gradual de-escalation of crisis management processes can take a very long time. Vicky described a period of crisis management with a particularly long tail. It was a good old-fashioned crisis. Um, we, we refer to it as the Great Crash of 2015. Uh, we had a, a server crash and um, lost all the data. Uh, we discovered through the recovery that the backup tapes were corrupt. Um, and so we were unable to restore from backup. It was a very important server. I won't go into the details, uh, but we then had a massive task with recreating. It was about 25 years worth of data. It, it took us a little over a year, but we didn't miss a single customer obligation. We didn't miss a single deadline. We, we carried on normal day-to-day -day operations. And, and yeah, our, we were paddling like crazy under the surface, but, but we were doing what needed to be done. But because of the nature of the incident, it was a very long time before it was fixed. And it didn't make sense for senior leadership to take their eye off the ball until we got to the end game, because it would have been really easy for everyone to go, oh, well, she's, senior leadership doesn't care, why should we? We covered just how important senior leadership's engagement with continuity activity was in season one. But this kind of timescale Vicky's talking about is worth emphasising. This wasn't a case of everyone pulling together in the immediacy of a crisis before moving on to something else. This was a concerted recovery effort over the course of a whole year, the momentum of which had to be sustained by energy from the top down. As important as top down leadership is, it doesn't necessarily prepare people on the ground for the moment to moment chaos of a crisis. I asked a few interviewees if there were any particular personality traits that made someone good in a disaster. The general consensus was that actually, any perceived aptitude for crisis situations is the result of unlearning some of our human instinctual responses. When, when crises happen, everybody panics. That, that's a rule. There's not, not, some people aren't just so cool that they, they don't get phased by these kinds of things. The natural human response to something bad happening is fight or flight. That's called panic. And the key to good, successful crisis response, crisis management, is having tools, techniques for getting past that. So despite the fact that you're trying to get a thousand and one things done really quickly, i.e. those feet under the water going like crazy, outwardly you're going, okay, I'm following the plan, now I do this, now I do the next thing, so that, so that you can calmly work through the series of activities that you need to do. My experience is, everyone can manage a crisis. Um, it's, it's straightforward. There are a small number of key skills that crisis leaders need to have. Um, crisis leaders need to be able to make decisions under pressure. This is not something we all do day to day. There are techniques for doing it. So, with the proviso that panic is a very natural response to crisis, what do the structures that help organizations start to shape a response look like up close? Vicky has a five-stage framework that she briefly explained in season one, but I think it bears further examination here. First, she broke down the four overarching stages of any crisis. Discovery, response, recovery, learn. I never ever use that model though, because 
when people are, are, are in the midst of a crisis, telling them about a model is, is not helpful. Um, what I instead have trained my people to think is a, a five-letter acronym called SADI. Um, now, SADI is spelt in unconventionally, S-I-A-D-I, -I, so SIADI. That's situations, impacts, actions, decisions, and issues. But what that is, is our standard meeting agenda. And this reinforces the work of John Boyd. So every time the crisis team come together, they go through, what's the current situation? What are the impacts? What are the actions that have been taken and need to be taken? What are the decisions that have been taken and need to be taken? And what are the issues? And issues are the things that we can see on the horizon that could be coming around the corner to bite us. So they're not happening yet, but they're the, they're the things that we might need to worry about next time. And by going through that same meeting agenda every time that crisis team comes together, you make sure that you're, you're reinforcing that iterative decision-making. As more and more information becomes available, you're getting access to it, so the whole team is learning it as they go because you're going through situation and impact, so that's that evolving, changing environment. Actions and decisions make sure that you're not not only planning on how to respond to what we see at the moment, but reviewing the ones that have already been made so that we can tweak those. And then, of course, issues, looking at the horizon and starting to think about what else could go wrong. Sadie, or S-I-A-D-I, works most effectively when it's fed by accurate information. This can be difficult in a crisis, as organisations are often forced to work with an incomplete understanding of the situation. Vicky had a good analogy that explained both the value of broad situational awareness and the perils of relying too inflexibly on pre-existing plans. There was a, a US fighter pilot named John Boyd who did some work in this space. And, and his work is so simple and so obvious, but not, not something that we usually think about. Basically, in the Korean War, he noticed that the opponents had better planes than the Americans did, and yet the Americans had a higher kill rate. That's counterintuitive. How can the ones with the better tech not be doing better than the ones with the poor tech or the weaker tech? And after a great deal of, of analysis, what he realized was that the American planes had bigger windscreens, which meant that they had a bigger field of view and could see what was happening and what was changing faster than the other guys who had a smaller windscreen and so weren't getting as much information about how things were changing along the way. And as a result, the Americans were able to, to react more quickly and better to the crisis at hand. And that's the whole thing with crisis management. You're not going to pick up a plan and read it and do what the plan says. Because the one thing you can guarantee at the start of a crisis, or there are a couple things, um, if you've got something written down on paper of how you're going to manage it, the crisis will not fit. It, they do not fit into anything on paper. You, you can have a business continuity plan for every single thing you can think of that can go wrong, and the actual thing that goes wrong will not be anything you've got down on paper. So that, that's number one. Planning is not about the plans, it's about the process. Number two, when crises start, you don't have anywhere near as much information as you would like. And you know at least half of the information you have is wrong. So, so you, you have to make decisions regardless, knowing that you want more information and at least half of what you've got is wrong. And how can you do that? We use John Boyd. 
basically you go, okay, well, based on the information I have right now, this is the best decision. And then the next time that crisis team comes together, you look at the decision you made and say, is that still the right decision? Or do we need to rethink? Do, do we need to do something slightly different? And by doing that, every time the crisis team comes together, reviewing the actions you've taken, reviewing the decisions you've made, and tweaking them, it means that you can stay on top of the emerging situation and constantly are making the best decisions possible. Um, so that, that decision-making is absolutely key to good crisis leadership. And in fact, the word crisis comes from a Greek word, krino, which means to decide. Just as business continuity planning isn't about the plans themselves, but rather the process of planning, good crisis management is less about making the exact right decision at any given moment, and instead the state of being decisive and having the mechanisms in place to refine your decision making as new information becomes available. The good news is that just like anything else, decisiveness is a skill that improves over time. Humans are hardwired to learn from every crisis they endure in order to make the next one easier. The trick within organizations is to transpose this individual human behavior into a collective reflex so that business recovery capabilities mature as a whole. Crisis management is all about decision-making. Obviously, situational awareness helps you make better decisions. And then the other thing that's really key is, is having a shared risk appetite. And we hear that all over the place. I prefer to think of it more in terms of some brain science. So I mentioned fight or flight earlier. There's a little bit in everybody's brain called the amygdala, a little tiny kidney-shaped thing that basically stores all the information that your brain uses to make that fight or flight decision. Now, it doesn't just store selected things. It stores everything you've ever seen, done, heard, said, etc. It's all in there. So that when you're panicking, immediately a thought will come to your mind. And that thought is the sum total of everything you've ever learned and the best decision that your brain can come up with in that moment. And by feeding the amygdala with crisis exercising, what you can do for a crisis team is help them think through, well, if this crisis actually happened, this is how we'd want to react to it. And then when you're in that panic state, when you're in that emergency, your brain's going to say, what you want to do is this. The brain is such a wonderful thing because it can do so, so much. Um, and it, it's foolish not to leverage it. I've, I've often talked to others about um, what I like to call intuitive decision making. And for those who choose to practice it, what you find is that if after the fact, you sit down and think about, well, why did I make that decision? you can actually trace back the logical steps of exactly what you've seen and done that got you to that point. And it's rare that the logic is flawed. The amygdala is just a, a marvelous piece of equipment. The key to building a collective organizational amygdala is the same as building out an individual one. Practice. Finding time for crisis exercising can be challenging alongside existing business continuity and IT disaster recovery activities. But Vicky's been able to find extra pockets of time here and there by expanding the economist's definition of crisis circumstances in order to run crisis exercises non-disruptively. Crisis exercising, I mean, if you've got somebody in-house who can help you with it is a great thing, but it does require some special skills. I've seen lots and lots of third parties who will, for a price, come in and run an exercise for you. They tend to involve guns and 
um, people being attacked by terrorists and, and a whole variety of things that, in my opinion, are really unlikely to happen. I think it's, it's more important to practice the things that are likely to happen. So what if you couldn't get into your building? What would you do? Oh, well, we'd have everybody work from home. Well, fine, then pick a day and have everybody work from home. See how it works. Did, what problems did you have? You can fix them. You know, most people wouldn't call that a crisis exercise. I do. One of the things one of our teams does is every time the tube has a strike, we practice our business continuity because the business continuity plan is work from home. And guess what? On tube strike days, it's just much easier to work from home. And so we, we go through the motions. Yeah. There's a call in the morning, so everybody dials in for prioritization and everybody knows what you know, their assignment is for the day. And then there's a wrap-up call at the end of the day, which is exactly what they would do in an actual incident. So everybody gets a chance to practice. One important caveat to this organizational amygdala is that broad participation is a requirement. It's only possible if, as Vicky said, everyone in the organization is given a chance to practice. All that said, no recovery is an entirely organic, autonomous operation. Someone has to call the shots, and it's not always the person you think is best suited to the job. It varies from organization to organization, and, and I've worked in organizations where I've seen it done different ways. My personal preference is that everybody in an organization needs to be involved in both planning and response, because in reality, everybody does get involved in response. So if you're not, if you're not taking that into account all the way along, you're going to run into trouble on the day. I have seen organizations who have assumed that somehow the head of business continuity would lead the crisis. In my opinion, that's craziness. I mean, the head of business continuity doesn't know the business. You need somebody who knows and understands the business leading the crisis. I mean, I myself generally act as scribe um, because I can act as a resource to the crisis team, and I can make sure that we've taken all the notes that we need to take so that we can do an appropriate post-mortem. This idea that certain job functions may or may not be suited to different recovery roles during an incident or a crisis isn't particularly common among small businesses. Small organizations seldom have a business continuity manager, let alone a group of people dedicated to planning and response. We discussed whether this disparity in available resources posed a problem for small organizations compared with enterprises. I think in small businesses, and, and by small, I would say 10 people or less, while they haven't documented anything, they've thought about it. The business owner knows how close to the wire they're operating. And they know if the building floods, I'll do this. If there's a fire, I'll do that. And if, if something really catastrophic happens, then I'll have to go out of business. And often that's the only choice that the small business has. I mean, that there are a limited number of responses to a crisis. My observation is most small business owners, while they don't write a lot of stuff down, they don't have that same need to share their plans with a large group of people. And that's really the main purpose of writing things down is so you can share what you're thinking. Medium-sized enterprises sort of are a very large group. The larger your enterprise gets, the more important it is to write things down. So even if you don't actively practice, if you at least write down and, and hey, everybody, if this, would, if this particular bad thing were to happen to us, this is how we think we'd like to react. And you can do that at board meetings, at um, general management committee meetings, 
at team meetings. It, it doesn't require something special or outside the box. We're going to hear Vicky's last story in a minute. The website defacement that required careful PR management from the start of the episode. I've saved it to now because I think it's a really good use case that exemplifies a lot of Vicky's approach towards crisis management. Sooner or later, all crises enter the public domain. Whether that's because it's a big, messy, visible public event, or an inquiry long after the fact when things go wrong at scale, people tend to find out eventually. But public attention doesn't always end negatively. And the response from Vicky's team actually brought them a huge amount of kudos and goodwill from the press and their peers. Crisis communication plans aren't always about turtling up and strangling the flow of information in and out of an organisation. Instead, early transparency with the press, coupled with a strong and generous crisis response plan, communicates a stable organisation, firmly in control of a difficult situation. Suddenly, the crisis is no longer the story. Your recovery is. So, um, I am fortunate in that we have had very few, or I have experienced very, very few media frenzy type events. We've only had one, um, although there have been a few others where we were concerned that there might be additional media attention. So The Economist is a medium-sized organization. We don't have a media machine in-house. When we have crises where we feel that there is the potential that we need media advice, we bring in an external third party to help us because we don't have the in-house expertise. Having said that, on all the occasions, four of them now, that we've brought somebody in, the process has roughly been the same. Figure out who you might need to communicate to and what you want to say to them and who the spokesperson is going to be and do as much prep as you can. Um, One of the key ones being the all staff message that tells all staff how you want them to respond. You know, if you get a call from the media, please forward it to this number. On the one incident that I'm thinking of, we had some advertising monitoring software installed on our website. We weren't stopping advertising. What we were doing was analyzing the advertising that was happening. Unfortunately, the particular supplier also produced uh, software that stopped people from stopping the ads and somebody took exception to this and hacked them. And when they hacked them, what they did was everywhere that any of their software was installed on the internet, all of a sudden, instead of serving up the usual ad monitoring software, we were serving up malware. And and it wasn't just us. Four, five hundred media organizations globally were impacted by this. So it was big. After some analysis of the malware, it became obvious that there was the potential that if one of our customers had been on the site at the time, clicked on the offer to upgrade their software, and it wasn't our software, it was Adobe software that the offer was made under, um, and had said yes about three or four times to, to various things, are you really sure you want to do this? They could have installed some pretty nasty malware on their home computer um, that would have been stealing user IDs, passwords, that sort of thing and could have cost them a huge amount of money. As a result, we took the decision to actually put a note on our website for all our users, telling them that the site had been compromised for a two hour window on Saturday night, as it so happened, that you'd have had to have gone through a long list of of bad choices to, to download it. 
Um, but if you had, you know, here was more information about the malware itself, and here were links to various tools to remove the malware and that sort of thing. Um, and finally, if you felt that it was all just way too complicated for you, we gave a phone number in Asia, uh, North America, and the UK where people could call and we would provide them assistance with going through and removing malware. We had zero calls, but we got a lot of kudos in the press for, for going public and saying, you know, our site was infected. We weren't, data wasn't compromised, but you, our users, could have been, and this is what you need to do to protect yourself. So you can take an incident and with good public relations, good media attention, you can actually turn it around and it can be better for you. Mm -hmm.